Why don't you guys stand me for reading of God's Word? This is John chapter 1, verse 3, and it goes like this. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. Let's pray. Father, this morning we ask that we would take Your words into our lives and live them. God, we ask that, that the Word that has been made flesh would take on a new reality to us today. And so we would become truly your children who live and show who you are in the world in which we live. Amen. Have a seat. We are going through the book of John. If you were here last week, we talked about how John saw Jesus, how he loved him as his rabbi and his friend and his God and his Lord and how he worshipped Jesus. So this morning we're going to look at a, a couple things, but the biggest one is the difference between Hebrew and Greek thought. Because this is something you have to get before you actually understand much of John. I'll give you a couple good books you can read. One is called Hebrew Thought Compared with Greek. It's by a guy named Thorleif Bonham. It's translated out of the German manuscripts. And I know you guys are just going to run out and buy that because it's, it's so good. Uh, it actually is a very good book. It's really thick and really heady. But there's also another book that's called Assumptions That Affect Our Lives by a guy named Christian Overman. And you can pick that one up. It's, it's a much easier treatise of the subject if you want to read a book on the subject. Okay, here we go. Uh, for, through thousands of years before John wrote the book of John, all right, uh, the, the Hebrews had this whole idea of who God was and how he spoke to his people. Uh, the, the Jews essentially had a gigantic pedigree of prophets and kings that spoke with, that knew God and, and knew his words. You would have Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Moses, and these people spoke with God. They knew who he was. And through God's words, he tells these people how to build their temple. He, through God's words, he gives them promise of, of this land that they're going to inherit. God comes and he, and he parts the Red Sea. And the Hebrews had a propensity to look at the world and their life and their land and believe that they held a privileged relationship with God, which they actually did. But because of their history, they equated the word of God with life and truth. Moses' book, which, is, or which are called the Torah, the first five books of your Old Testament, was considered called the teaching or the way. They said the Torah was life. The words in the Torah were life. And so there came this belief among rabbis that if you could speak all of the Torah, all of the words in one breath, you could pronounce the name of God. So they had teachers, and these teachers would devote themselves to learning. Open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. Now they, they believed that, that this word of God, these words that he spoke, that they were active that they were alive in the world. The book of Hebrews is written from a Hebrew perspective, from a Jewish perspective. In Hebrews 4.12, towards the back, it says this, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. That is a very Hebrew ideal. Through God's word in Genesis 1, creation comes into existence. In Isaiah 55, it says his word goes out. It does not return void. It accomplishes all the purposes for which God set it out to do. Every time God acted in the world, it was his word. And so John comes from this lineage that understands this. You guys follow me? Is this on? You guys follow? Okay, good. All right. 
The Greek world is different. The Greek world is not bound in religion. It is not bound in faith. The Greek world was bound in philosophy. For the Hebrews, they would trace to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. The Greeks would trace themselves to a guy named Heraclides. Okay, I got a picture. Wearing the, like, the, like the Malibu shirt, you know. It's kind of, whatever, okay. I said the Jean-Luc Picard do, but if you're not a Star Trek geek, it doesn't make any sense to you whatsoever. It's Heraclides. Um, and so you have these guys in the Greek world, and, and they kind of follow this whole idea of who Heraclides was. Now, when the, where John's writing his, his gospel at this time, William Barclay says that the Greeks probably outnumbered the Jews at the church at this time 100,000 to 1. 100,000 to 1. So the Greeks had a concept of the word, the logos, which stemmed from Heraclides. Heraclides predates Aristotle, Plato, Socrates. You know, I have been waiting for the day that this would happen. Okay. It's right there down the street. I'm surprised no one else is like falling off something and broken their self. Uh, He predates uh, Aristotle and Socrates and Plato and Cicero. And and what he comes is Heraclides taught that the world is in flux. The world is full of chaos. It is out of control. He has this idea that if you step into a river and you pull your foot out and you step into the river again, it's not the same river because it's always flowing. The river is always different. Nothing stays constant. Everything is in change. And so there's so much change in the human world, he tries to explain how there can still be overarching harmony within the world. So he comes up with the idea of the word, the logos. Okay? The logos is the essence and study of philosophy and learning. The logos created the world via fire. The logos, the word, governs human affairs. The human soul is only eternal if it is connected to the the Logos, the Word, the Word. It's a three-volume work called On Nature. It addresses cosmology, theology, and philosophy. And you read his works, you realize he is not a Christian. Okay? He is not a believer. But he believes in the gods. And the gods are capricious. It's like the gods are like Teen Girls Squad, but like superpowered. Right? <laughs> they're, just, they're like just all hopped up on emotion, and they, and they don't know what to do with themselves. He, he is also known as the weeping philosopher because he himself was bipolar. They say melancholy. I say bipolar, whatever. He, comes from, he came from the town of Ephesus, and he was so influential that when he died, they minted coins on, with his face on them that were in circulation hundreds of years after his death. Again, his thinking influences Plato, Aristotle, Socrates, Alexander the Great. So the Greeks had their own pedigree just like the Jews. And so John seeks as the elder statesman to bring these two groups together, Jews and Greeks, with the idea of the word. Exactly, exactly. If you could bring them together, it would be great. If you could not, things would begin to fall apart. Jews would say things like, well, the Messiah came. He is the great hope. But many of the Greeks didn't have any concept of a Messiah that was a great hope. So the Greeks would say, we have a Messiah, but we outnumber you 100,000 to 1. You know, what are you guys going to do? So John brings them together, articulating something they can both understand. 
So John is a missionary to the Greeks, this Jewish ideal helping them to understand. Matthew, he goes and he writes his gospel to the Jews, showing that Jesus is the Messiah. Mark writes his gospel to the Romans. It's very action-packed. What did Jesus do to get the job done? Yes, he did. Luke writes his gospel to the Gentiles, and he explains many concepts and ideas. It's very chronological. And John writes his gospel after all the others are written, and he tries to reconcile all these worlds. His gospel is unlike the other three. 90% of John is unique to John. Where Matthew, Mark, and Luke share many of the same stories and a lot of the same things that happen, John doesn't. It's not that he actually says something different. It's that he highlights different things in Jesus' life. So open to John chapter 1. And here John brings this together. John writes in Greek to the Greeks. It's like, oh, I got those. Okay. And he says, in the beginning, okay, in the beginning, this period before time, before time in anything, was the word. And so you got Greeks and you got Hebrews. And he brings them together. <laughs> hey, I want you to know that I'm missing pieces because someone stole some after first service. Okay. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. Oh. Yes, they're all totally agreeing. Yes. And he says, and the word was God. <laughs> My wife did that too. He takes me and he brings these two worlds together and like, yes, the word, the, oh, I got it, yes. And then he shatters it because he says, the word is God. Everything you know is wrong. The word is divine. He takes these Greeks and Hebrew concepts and he just shatters them. The word is not just some divine force. Don't take that home with you. The word is not just some divine force with a rational mind like the Greeks would say. It's not just God's action and his speaking like the Hebrews would say. The word is God. It is God. He's articulating the Father is God and the Son is God and so is the Spirit. The triune nature of who God is. In the beginning, the Logos, the Word, okay, the Word is with God and the Word was God. And then he shows that the Word is personal. In verse 2 he says, He was with God in the beginning. He is divine. He is personal. The it is a he. He is knowable. He was with the Father. And the next statement, he tries to begin to put them back together. In verse 3, he says, Through him all things were made. Oh, and so they're a little more comfortable again. But then once again, he uses the word him. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. All creation is conducted by the word of God. Verse 4, In him was life. Creation and life come out of the word of God. And that life was the light of men. Takes the word, goes the light. Light also, a concept with the Greeks and the Hebrews. The Hebrew had a concept of light, that in the beginning God creates the heavens and the earth. He brings light out of darkness. God separates life from death and clean from unclean and light and dark. All throughout the scriptures, rabbis believe that the entire Old Testament was God separating light and dark and clean and unclean and life and death. There's this concept of what the light is. And then also the Greeks, darkness is chaos and it is bondage and God sends the light into our souls. And it's all summarized in this verse, verse 5. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. See, in the Greek text, there's this play on the words. And so does it mean that the light uh, hasn't been understood by the darkness or that the light hasn't been overcome by darkness? And the answer is yes. 
It's, it's both those things. The world is full of pride and jealousy and lust and anger and hatred and discord. And God shines his light and the darkness doesn't like it. And it wars against it because it is fearful of it. But the light is stronger. Kind of sounds a little bit like George Lucas. I know. But just a little bit. Okay. It's like you and I. We are, we are in a dark place and a light gets turned on. Is that a joy or is that a curse? Depends. Depends on who you are. If you're lost, it's a joy because you've been found. If you are evil and you're hiding evil, like you're stealing from someone or you're designing new pop-up ads for the Internet or signing a boy band to a record label, then it's a curse. Okay? Then it's a curse. And you're angry because you're exposed. It's like, oh, my goodness, the light is shining. If you're a criminal, you hop in your white Bronco and you run, run, run. Okay? That's what happens. For those of us who are lost, we are happy because we have been found. I mean, you can't run from the light because the light is more powerful than the darkness. That's what he's saying. It goes from word to light, and then he moves to a witness of who the light was. So he talks about a guy named John. Now, there are two Johns in your Bible. There's John the disciple and John the baptizer. Okay? John the baptizer is the cousin of Jesus, and this is who John now talks about. John will typically... When he says, when John talks about John, he's not talking about himself. When John talks about himself, he says, the guy that Jesus loved. Oh, this other disciple was doing this. He never really talks about, oh, I'm John. Look at me. I'm so great. When you see the word John, it's typically John the baptizer in here. And so John the baptizer, his mom was Elizabeth. And he was, his mom was really old and she was barren. She's related to Mary, the mother of Jesus. And the first time John and Jesus meet, they're in their mother's wombs. Elizabeth is old. This is like you don't buy green bananas old because you don't know if they're going to ripen before you go. Okay, she's that old. So it's a miracle that she becomes, it's a miracle that she becomes pregnant. Okay, and then on the other side, you've got Mary, and Mary is a virgin. Her odds of getting pregnant? Pretty slim. Okay, so miracle also. Two miracle babies and their moms and them get together and they leap for joy. And years later, which we'll talk about this next week when I make a whole lot of fun of John the Baptist, he shows up looking like a complete freak. Okay, he comes out of the woods screaming and yelling, unshaved, half-dressed, stinky, and he's given this mandate that says God is coming into the world. And you have to read your Bible with a bit of sarcasm and irony to really get where it's going. Okay, Word, light, move to this witness. Verse 6, there came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. It's like a setup for a great Western. It's like, you know, his name was John. You're like, here he comes. He came as a witness to testify concerning the light so that through him all men might believe. And so you got word, light, belief. And throughout the rest of the New Testament, and especially John's gospel, all these concepts are tied together. Belief is tied to life, light, and the word. John 20.31 says, John writes this, But these are written, these words, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Believing life. Verse 8, he himself, that's John, was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light, the true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. John came to point the way to Jesus. And most churches and most people miss this because the churches think that they are the light. Guys, I'm a pastor in this church. I am not the light. You are not the light. We are darkness brought under the light. John knows he cannot heal, he cannot forgive, he cannot love unless the light does that through him and enables him to truly love and heal and forgive. That's what the light does. And John is a witness. A witness is somebody that points to a thing. We're pointing here. And so we point to the truth. We point to Jesus. That's what John does. 
So John recognizes the light. Most people didn't. Verse 10, he, that's the light, Jesus, was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. God who creates the world, the word who creates the world, comes into it as a man. That is humility. His creation doesn't recognize him. Just like if God came into the world today, I don't think we'd recognize him. We'd be like, who is that? Because he wouldn't probably dress nice. You know, he, we'd say, oh, he's got to dress nice. He's got to hang out with the right people. Uh, he's got to have wealth and influence and popularity. His name should end with Jobs or Gates or Hendrix or something like that. You know, but no. If you look at Jesus, his resume before the resurrection is not very impressive. After, it's stellar, but before, he is homeless, he is single, and he never travels 30 miles outside of his hometown. That's his resume. Now, you've got to go with me this morning, because I'm going to mock some town, local. And uh, don't get angry if this is your town, all right? Uh, what is the most backwater, podunk town around here, you know, where people like marry their relatives and nobody cares? You know, like, what? Casmelia. What do you got? Little Salamos. Lompoc. Somebody said Lompoc verse service. What do you guys got against Lompoc? Cuyama? Gary. They came up with, really? Man, they came up with Gary first service, too. Okay, so I guess, I guess we're going to go with Gary. All right. All right, don't raise your hands if you're from Gary, because there's, I think, only 10 people there anyway, whatever. So imagine this. Jesus comes into the world, and he comes from Gary. Okay, he comes from Gary. They're like, where are you from? Gary. Oh, well, that's in the dumpy little town. He could have maybe even had an accent. Could have sounded to Jewish ears a bit harsh, like this. Blessed are y'all if you're poor in spirit. Well, who are you? Jesus Christ, Lord Creation. Really, where are you from? Gary. <laughs> Who's your parents? My mom, she's a teenage virgin. How do you know? Well, she told me. She never touched a man before I was born. Well, they say that, but it's not true. It's true. You know, I, I know it's true. So what do you do? I walk around. I, I teach a lot. I got, I got this great trick with fishes and loaves. <laughs> okay, well, how old are you? I got 30 candles on my birthday cake. You know, but I, I spoke creation and existence. Bam, it, it was there. Really, you're God. Yep, Lord of creation. That, that, that's me. Where do you live? I'm homeless. It's tough. <laughs> you know? What have you written? Well, one day I wrote on sand, but I don't think it's there no more. It, it kind of blew away. So you roll over all creation. All creation is mine. Well, how much of that creation have you seen? About 30 miles. But I made it all. It's, it's all mine. Jesus comes from a backwater hit town to a teenage virgin mom, and his dad is the idiot who believes her when she says... God got me pregnant. Verse 10, he was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. Of course not. I am a Lord God of creation from Gary. You know, it's, of course not. When we think God comes, he's got to be way more impressive than that. Isaiah 53, 2 says this, he grew, he grew up uh, before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He looked normal. They even said in John 1.46, can anything good come out of Gary or Nazareth is what they say there? 
It's the beauty of God. He comes like nobody expects. God who is spirit takes on flesh. God who is eternal takes on time. God who is light steps into darkness. Verse 11, he came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. They're waiting for the Messiah, and they say, that cannot be God. That cannot be him. Soren Kierkegaard is, is a philosopher, and, he, and I got a book called The Parables of Kierkegaard, and I'm going to give you one of them, my reinterpretation of it a little bit. Uh, there, there's a great king, and he has phenomenal authority and phenomenal wealth and power, and he is riding out in the country one day, and he sees this very beautiful peasant girl. He's totally smitten with her. So he begins to ask about her, and he finds out that she is very, very poor, yet very rich in character. So he wants to get to know her, but he thinks in his mind, I'm the king. If I ask her to marry me, I will never know if she marries me because I'm the king or because she really loves him. So he takes on the guise of a peasant. He gets a job in the vineyard with her, and he works through springtime and harvest. He gets to know her and love her, and she loves him, poor, common, and normal. And he asks her to marry him. And she says, yes. So he says, great, put on a dress. I will come and pick you up. So she's standing out with her family with her dress on. And all of a sudden, over the hill comes a thousand people. you got soldiers and bands just playing like nuts. And they come and they pick her up. And they take her into the city, up to the palace, and walk her in. And there's the king sitting on the throne. And she walks up to him and he says, I wanted you to love me because I love you, not because I was the king. That is what God does by becoming a man. He comes humble, unexpected, regular guy from a regular town with a regular family. And they said, you're not the king. And Jesus says, I am. If you love me, you will come into my kingdom. And John's take on Jesus is complete humility. It's beautiful. Verse 12, yet all who received him to those who believed in his name. That means you trust in the totality of who he is. He gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or of human will, but born of God. God comes into the world to those who believe. God gives an, an adoption. Spiritually speaking, we are all orphans, and God brings us into his family. And it starts with the word, the logos, light, becoming flesh, and it comes down to a family. Why did the word become flesh? Because we were lost, and we needed saving. We were in need of a family. It's like uh, Lilo and Stitch. It's one of my favorite movies ever. And I think it's a totally spiritual movie because the whole thing is about him finding a family. Scripture says, go watch the movie. Okay. <laughs> and so now what John does is he flips and he, and he takes this whole thing about how Jesus, the Word, now takes on flesh. Verse 14, he says, the Word became flesh. This word that you have known through the totality of what you think it was, this word who is actually God, takes on flesh, and he made his dwelling among us. The word, the Greek and the Hebrews, becomes flesh. The word participated in his own creation. Flesh with its frailty and hunger and sorrow and grief. This goes all the way back for the Jews to Exodus, when they're out in the middle of the wilderness, and they're, and they're just kind of traveling around, they decide to start building tents so they can sleep in these tents. And God comes and he says, I want a tent too. So they build this tent. It's called the tabernacle. And God lives in this tent with his people out in the middle of the desert. Then Jesus comes, God in the flesh, in this tent of skin. And he walks around on the dust of the earth with us. In verse 14, he says, We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only. Only Jesus holds the glory of God, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. He says, All Greek theology, all Hebrew history is found in Jesus. All grace, all truth, Jesus. That's his point. 
Jesus points out our sin. He convicts us, and yet he has grace to forgive you and I. Verse 15, John, the baptizer, testifies concerning him. He cries out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. John is older. Jesus is younger. And it meant that John should have had more authority. Yet Jesus, John's cousin, is God. Okay, Imagine that. One day you finally realize your cousin is God. I've never mistaken my cousin for God. I've mistaken him for the devil many times. Okay, But, but never God. John, the baptizer, he dies. He gets his head cut off because he worships his cousin. He says, I am not worthy to take off his, the shoes of his feet. Verse 16, from the fullness of his grace, we have received one blessing after another. Now it says, those who live in darkness, they don't see God's grace. It does not mean that it's not there. It doesn't mean that it's not present. They just don't have eyes to see it because the darkness is too dark. But John says he has come to the conclusion that God's grace still continues to be bestowed upon a dying world because God is good. Verse 17 says, For the law was given through Moses. There's no graded scale. We all fall short. There are no good guys and bad guys. There is just Jesus and everybody else. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. We fall short. He picks us up. The law through Moses, grace through Jesus. That is the picture of the cross. All the shortcomings and sins of the world were placed upon Jesus at the cross. That's the point. He takes our sin. He gives us life. He gives us freedom. He gives us truth. The truth that says you are not good, but you are loved. And in that, we can also then become good because he can make us so. Verse 18. No one has ever seen God, but God the one and only. Only one. Who is at the Father's side has made him known. Jesus is God, and he has shown God to us. I mean, that is the point. That is... Word, light, life, logos, becoming flesh. That is the whole point. Jesus came to make God known, period. If you have ever said, I wish I knew what God was like, you look to Jesus. You look to Jesus. He's the clearest picture and the most focused revelation of who God is. I mean, there is not some mean God in the Old Testament that is all bipolar and angry, and there's not a nice God in the New Testament called Jesus. Okay, There is one God, only one. Jesus has made the Father known. Like Jesus is a window we look through and we get to see the Father. We live in a world that is groping around in darkness, looking for spirituality, looking for God. He is found in Jesus. The Hebrews, in the totality of the Old Testament law, their word, the morality, their light, is Jesus. To the Greeks, looking for wisdom, insight, learning, philosophy, life after death, answers, it is all found in Jesus. That's his point. Jesus answers every question anyone has ever had about God. If it cannot be answered in Jesus, it cannot be answered. Into our darkness, God sends one pure, clean answer to dispel the confusion. And the answer is Jesus, and he leads us to the Father. That's the point. Am I clear? Checking. We are lost in the woods, and there is one light that leads us home. And that is Jesus. Is Jesus. This morning, if you are not a Christian, if you're not a Christian, John says he writes these things that you may believe, that you may believe. This isn't just mere words, okay? It is trusting in the core of your identity that you are invited to believe. I talk to some people, and like my dad, my dad's not a Christian. And sometimes we talk about Christianity, and my dad's like, Yeah, but that's a crazy story. And I go, I know. <laughs> It's a crazy story. It really is. You know, it's like no one's going to make this up. You know, there's, there, 
I sound crazy sometimes. It's like, you know, there, there's one God. He spoke. Everything comes into existence. We rebelled and we sinned against Him and death is now our destiny and we are lost and we are orphans. And God came as a kid born to a virgin in a dumpy, hick town. Never wrote anything down except for some stuff in the sand. And He dies and He rose from the dead to reconcile the world to Himself. And the answer to every question ever asked in the totality of the universe is Jesus. It sounds crazy. I know. But if it is true, it cuts through all the crap, all the crap, and answers every single question. John says he writes it down so that we would believe. It isn't a ticket to heaven. It's eternal life, which is a state of being, where we live now knowing the truth and that light every day. And every day we change and reflect him more and more and more. It continues forever. If you do not believe, my invitation for you today is belief. Secondly, for those of you who do believe, Give you two examples. Number one is John the Baptist. John the Baptist never points to himself. He only points to Jesus. He comes and he's like, I am not the way. Jesus is the way. I am not the truth. Jesus is the truth. I am not the life. Jesus is the life. It's like his whole job was to be like, I'm not the guy. I'm not. Are you? I'm not. And what he says is, whole, I am not. He is. That's who he is. Second example I give you is John the disciple. Okay, we live in the greatest country I think the world has ever known. We have TVs and cars and TiVo, which is great, and food and freedom. But we are sick because we are people who claim to love God and yet do atrocious things in his name all the time. We say, oh, oh, I love Jesus, and yet we don't listen to him when we know exactly what he tells us, what he wants us to do. And if you were to confront somebody with Scripture and say, look, you know, here's the deal. They want to fight with you, and they want to judge you, especially when you're trying to hold them accountable. And we live this lie that says our spirituality is between God and me, so back off. That's never been true, ever. Your spiritual, your spiritual life, your spirituality is to interact and intersect with everyone you come into contact with. That's how it's supposed to work. Everything you do is spiritual, everything. This culture desperately needs a people like John the Disciple who take the truth of Jesus, put it into cultural metaphors so they understand, put it on display, and show and live what it means to love and follow the truth. We are to be God's statements into this world as His word of light, His grace and mercy and truth that point to Jesus. It's how God does, gets things done in this world is through you and I, His kids his kids. So today we come, we sit in this place of realization with word, light, and life, and logos, and humanity. The first question is, do you believe? And if you don't, you need to. The second thing is, if you do believe, you've got to ask yourself the question, what does it mean for you and the people you come into contact with? What does it mean? How has your life changed? And this morning, I would ask that you would pray that God would begin to change you and clean you and so that you will be able to fully reflect who he is to those around you. That is the point. We come to communion every single week. And the point of communion is we take and we break a piece of that cracker off like Christ's body was broken. We dip it in the wine or the grape juice, which is like Christ's blood that was shed for us. Remember that. Because it is the word, the logos, the light becoming flesh to save you and I so that we can then change and be different and be new people. And we take this in remembrance of what He did for you and I, so that we can then live as children of the light. The band's going to come up and play. And as they do, I'm going to invite you this morning to worship God through communion, to walk up and take it and remember who God is, 
what He has done for you. To take a moment to reflect. Do you believe? And if you do, how can you better reflect that light? Second, we're going to worship God through songs, and the band's going to play some songs, and as they play some songs, reflect. Take that moment just to, you know, talk between you and God. We're going to worship God through giving. There's offering boxes on the side wall and in the very back of the room. Uh, we're going to worship God through prayer. There'll be some elders and deacons in the back of the room to pray with you. If you need prayer, if you're like, I want to believe and I don't, pray with me. Or, I do believe, but I want to be cleaned up and I want to reflect that light better. They'll be there to pray with you. Then when we're done, uh, we're going to hang out and talk to each other because part of the job as believers is we're supposed to help each other to move forward to better reflect that light. And so, get together with some other people and do that. And then, live your life outside these walls. Reflect who God is. Don't keep Him all pent up like it's, oh, it's just my spirituality, me and God. No. Let your, let your love of Christ intersect and interact with every person you come into contact with because that is the point. God didn't just save you to sit on your butt. God saved you to love people. So we do. Let's pray. Father, this morning, we as your kids ask that we would learn how to uh, build bridges as John did and in some cases shatter bridges as John did. Uh, We ask that, that our lives would better reflect who you are Because you are our king who has come in humanity and humility to touch and redeem and love us. And I ask that we would learn to love you back. That we would truly learn to be your kids. And that we would better reflect you to the world in which we live. Amen.